no, I, I would say if we're talking entrepreneurs out there, my my biggest advice on that, because because a lot of people ask me, is is you just got to keep your internal operating costs down, and you just got to be willing to grind realistically for like five to ten years on nothing. And and if you don't have that capability, it's why would you do it? Like, what's the point? It's just. It's too risky and too crazy. Hey, you're gonna love this interview with Wes Gray. He is a Marine and the founder CEO of Alpha Architect. We get into the classic debate of active versus passive investing, the founding thesis of his company, how a billionaire reached out to him cold and invested $50 million into his company. And at the end, we talk about the enormous tax advantages associated with living in Puerto Rico. Stay with us. Wes, welcome to Go Deep with Aaron Watson. I'm excited to be talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Uh, honored to be here. So you've got a, a really interesting business that we're going to break down, not only how you've built it and everything that's gone into it, uh, but the, the kind of starting question that I wanted to bring to you was really that of, you know, the folks that aren't professional investors, but need to do some investing because we're all you know trying to save for retirement or other uh, goals. And there's been this, you know, huge narrative wave, I would say. Um, that there's, you know, conventionally kind of been two pathways by which someone would uh, do their investing. They'd either, you know, go hire someone to be an active manager or to take a really big fee and like, they're going to beat the market. They're going to do special things with that, with your money, basically. Or there's this, you know, uh, Bogle Vanguard school of thinking, which is set it and forget it, throw it in an index fund, never return in any way, shape or form to, to analyze that. Um, so can you talk to me a little bit just or start things off with folks? There's there's a middle ground there between those two extremes. Can you just take people through how you think about that uh, X, Y axis? Yeah, sure. So so to your point, like a good baseline for any investor is just to literally avoid all the BS and focus on the cheapest, most diversified, low cost solution, which to your point is Vanguard. Right. That, so that should always be someone's baseline. We have a framework called the facts uh, where we always say, hey, make sure you focus on the facts. And what does that stand for? Well, F stands for fees. Keep them low. Uh, A stands for access, i.e. like your liquidity. Keep it high. Uh, C stands for complexity. Keep it low. And then T stands for taxes, um, which Vanguard and a lot of ETF structures will do for you. And then the S stands for search, which is like your due diligence, all your brain damage costs. You obviously want to keep that low. So as a baseline solution, Vanguard's amazing. And then to your point on the other end is like, well, let's go pay like way overpriced active managers that do all kinds of crazy things to try to beat the market. Um, the problem with them is there's not necessarily anything wrong with being an active investor trying to beat the market and, and trying to earn higher returns than just say a passive index. The issue is if you charge too much, for the value that you're potentially creating, it's a net negative, right? And so the, the kind of the happy medium is if is if you did active investing or try to get the cost out of active investing, right? So maybe you don't want to just own the SP 500 for the next 50 years because we know there's all these different techniques where over long time cycles and to the extent you can deal with the pain and anguish of the strategy you're going to try to engage in, it can beat the market but you have to keep the cost down still, right? So so we call that affordable alpha or affordable active. Um, and we're a believer in that as well. 
but only for a certain segment. So either really cheap, super simple, great. Uh, or you could do, you know, pretty cheap, really affordable and more active. Also great. Doing really expensive, active, not good uh, <laughs> is basically the answer. Makes sense. And one of the things that, and maybe this is just me, you know, not liking to follow the crowds and being, maybe I like to sure. believe myself to be a contrarian, but um, th there's always been something that kind of irked me about, like, I'm just literally buying the exact same thing that every single other person is buying. And to some degree, you know, you hear, if you do what everyone else does, you're going to get the same results as everyone else. And yes. for whatever reason, I'm a, I'm a cat that likes to try to beat to a different yeah. uh, drum beat. So yep. talk a little bit about tangibly putting that into practice, what that looks like, mm -hmm. and then how that inspired the company that you founded. Yeah, sure. So, so again, the problem as you approach financial services is you always got to remember that people are always trying to sell you something and they're very good at preying on your emotions and desires. And, and one, one of the biggest emotions out there is ego. I'm not, not that it's a bad thing, but like, like you may go out there and be like, you know what? I just, I can't be like everyone else. And, and that could be attributed to like ego. Totally fine. Total natural thing that most people do. However, if you talk to the wrong people, they're going to identify that as a personality trait. And they're going to be like, Oh, how can I exploit this? Well, I'm going to sell them overpriced stuff that sounds really different, is really cool, unique, different. And I'm going to win because I can charge this individual, uh, take advantage of their ego and they're going to end up losing, but they'll, they'll feel better about it. So obviously we always want to be really careful about avoiding that because of the, the incentives of the financial service industry. Now that said, there's nothing wrong with trying to be better than average and being different. And in fact, the only way you ever even have a hope or a prayer of beating and winning in the marketplace is obviously you have to be different, right? You can't own everything that everyone else owns and expect to outperform them because that's just silly. Um, so you, we know you have to be different to, to do well, but in a financial marketplace, you're also competing with everyone out there and it's, it's a hyper competitive game, right? So usually in order to be different and do well, it requires you to do things that are typically uncomfortable, um, not fun, and painful, right? Because in the end, you're going to have to trade with someone in the marketplace. And so what a lot of the financial research, and again, I, I speak from just what academic research says, uh, like data-driven, evidence-based stuff. I'm not a, I'm not anymore. I'm not a stock picker. Now I'm just a PhD quant type that just reads academic journals all day. What, what the collective academic research suggests is that if you're willing to be different, do things that are painful, maybe a little bit more risky, you have the horizon, you're not so worried about just being like the other lemmings out there. A few of the different techniques that you can tangibly put into play, uh, always being cognizant of obviously of cost and taxes, because that can ruin any any good idea, paying too much or, or paying too much in taxes, is it boils down to a few types of strategies. One would be what they call classic value strategies. So that would be strategies that essentially buy cheap stuff, right? So if, if your audience is not real familiar with stocks, it, it, but they know about real estate, well, instead of going buy like the brand new house that they're selling out in the development, you go buy the boarded up, you know, row home in, in the middle of the ghetto that is selling really cheap. That that's called value investing, and, and and the equivalent in stocks like buying securities and companies that don't look that good on paper, but they're selling really cheap. If you systematically do strategies that do that over long horizons, they generally tend to beat the market 
over long horizons. Um, the other kind of class of strategy that you could do to kind of quote unquote beat the market is what they call momentum strategies. So these are strategies where you just, you systematically buy winners. So when things are doing well, you buy them. But more, most importantly, when things are not doing well, you don't get enamored or you don't believe the story, you get rid of them. So momentum is another strategy that people can use at least systematically over a long time horizon to quote unquote beat the market. But it's, it's a much more trading intensive strategy than value. Like those are probably like the two main ways that are, that are simple to explain. Uh, if you have the horizon willingness to be different, keep your costs down that you can usually quote unquote beat the market in expectation. Uh, if you have like a 20 year horizon. And so basically the founding thesis for alpha architect, your company, that that can be operationalized and systematized so as to not need an active person on the button or the trigger, yes. so to speak. And yep. instead algorithms, computer programs, uh, you know, basically writing rules of the road and then letting that just um, operate on its own is scalable, attainable for lots of people. Yes. So, so what we do is we try to solve two things. And I'll walk you through each of them. The first one is, is if you're going to be an active manager, i.e. you're not just going to buy a Vanguard fund, you need to somehow develop a process that, that intuitively and economically can beat the market over, over a long time horizon, right? So obviously we spent a lot of time doing the research, trying to think about how to achieve this. And there's two methods you can basically do. One method is you, you know, beat your head against the wall, read every 10K report, go talk to the managers, go talk to supply channel, do like epic due diligence on a firm and try to pick the right stocks. The other thing you can do, um, which we're, I used to do that, by the way, um, now, now I'm what they call a systematic investor, is you can just use data to identify uh, the securities or the stocks that on average will produce these favorable results. And it turns out, even though it may not be that intuitive, that when you compare the performance of just doing a system, for example, that buys cheap stocks or quote unquote value invest, um, those systems, which just generically go by, hey, things that are really cheap on say like a price to earnings ratio, uh, they tend to do just as well as the human beings that maybe spend 20 hours a day reading 10K reports trying to pick value stocks, right? And so kind of my PhD thesis was essentially proving that to myself, where I literally read a bunch of stock picks, uh, you know, that individuals were doing, and I put them together, and I said, well, you can actually just systematically do the same thing and end up in the same place. So that's step one for us: is how do we build algorithms and systems that can general uh, generate a process that will presumably help win over time? But that's not what you have to do to win, because now I need to be able to deliver this cheap and affordably to the marketplace, right? Because if I charge a lot for a process that's good, it's not going to be a win to the client. So we need to also make it affordable. So, so our business came about where, hey, we believe we, we have the R&D capability. We have all the PhDs like everyone else. We can come up with the processes that will win over the long haul. But our objective is how do we do that low cost? Well, we're going to have to get rid of this notion that we're going to drive Ferraris, go live on Park Avenue and like do all this kind of crazy stuff. We, we've got to actually live and, and act like, like we did in the Marines. Like in the Marines, they got something called do more with less, right? Like if, if we're going to be able to deliver this cheaper to the client, you know, we've got to rip the cost out of the ecosystem so, so we can manage these products, deliver them to the marketplace in an affordable way. And that means we just got to clean out anything that's in the way of, you know, adding costs, but no value, essentially. 
Got it. And so in terms of scaling something like this, you know, we've had plenty of software entrepreneurs on the show before. And, you know, the AWS, Microsoft, Azure, Google Cloud type of solutions are one of the things that enables scaling in a way that previous eras, like they literally had to rack their own servers just to be able to put something at scale in a, in a relatively expedient uh, amount of time. What yep. is uh, what is the confluence of technological and other just macro developments that makes bringing something like the like this to the market possible now? Like the classic question: Why not twenty years ago? Why not ten yes. years ago? Great, great question. And, and I'll tell you that story because we kind of got lucky, right? So historically, the way asset management work is, well, it still works like this to some extent, massive scale business, right? Because it's all about distribution and, and being able to pay all the lawyers and everyone to build up the compliance would have, right? Huge barriers to entry. Because how in the heck are you going to launch a firm where you need a hundred salespeople out there in the field to get anyone to buy it, to get you to the scale, to be able to pay all the lawyers to help you run this stupid thing, right? And so that has always been a problem. But that said, and this is kind of something that's came about now or the last 10, 15 years, and we just happened to start exact this time, is we started immediately with our firm with a mission, empower investors for education. And one of our core beliefs is transparency. So we immediately went digital marketing, right? Inbound content, we wrote content, we did research, because I'm, I'm not into like selling and like jamming stuff in front of grandma's face, but I really like research. I love talking about the data. I love talking about the processes. So it was just natural for us to just say, hey, I'm not gonna do sales, I'm gonna do education. And that happened to be perfectly time when blogs, they weren't cool yet, but they were kind of getting cool. And so I started a blog, like I don't even know, like 12, 15 years ago, and started writing about this stuff. And then all of a sudden people realize, like, wait, internet connections are getting better. No one believes these salespeople anymore because now you can Google anything. There's a lot more transparency and ability to do your own due diligence. You know, why am I listening to this idiot sales guy when I can actually just go Google and find blogs with people that got PhDs that are going to explain to me how this works, right? So I think the uh, technology has, has allowed um, a lot of voices to be out there and in a democratic way, they kind of move to the top. But it's, you know, it's low cost for me to put out a blog. And if one person wants to read it or 1 billion people want to read it, it only costs me the time to put out the blog. And, and I think just the way that the world's moved towards getting their information from Google, from getting their information from blogs, internet and direct to consumer, that that's what allowed us to scale our business without having to hire any salespeople. Like, like we're only starting, even though we've been doing this for 12 years now, we, I think we have like, officially we have like two salespeople and, and they're wow. kind of recent onboards the last few years. It's always been organic inbound uh, direct marketing. And that, you know, that's how we got where we are. What about actually gathering the assets though? Like it's not the same as a mm -hmm. server, but do, like, I'm just so ignorant of this. Like, are there things that break yeah. when you actually just get more assets under management? And maybe you hear about that with like a hedge fund. It's like, you know, mm -hmm. we could make our trades when we had, you know, 50 or a hundred million AUM, but yeah. when we're a 2 billion AUM firm, like we just can't even make the same trades because it doesn't, yeah. you know, the opportunity isn't there. Yeah. So, so, so that, that's an easy problem to solve. And, and what I always tell people, cause we, I deal with entrepreneurs all the time entering our space, AUM literally solves all problems. Like those are all problems of too much. And AUM stands for assets under management. 
So if you have a problem of having too much asset problems, like what you just talked about, well, that's a great problem to have because that means you probably own 10 private islands and you have millions of dollars and millions of resources and you could solve that, right? Yeah. That's not the issue with being an asset manager. Like a caveman could figure that out or a cave woman, cave person, I should say. Um, but the hard problem with the asset manager is the barriers to entry to get started in the first place, right? Because there's one thing is when you're actually small and you don't have a lot of assets, you actually have a huge advantage in the sense that you don't have to deal with any scalability problems. You can buy and sell anything without any impact. So you have that advantage. You're super nimble and you can do weird things and no one looks at you oddly. The problem is you have massive fixed costs and you need to get like an e in the case of an ETF, you need to have $50 million day one or you're lighting money on the fire you, you know, so, or lighting money on fire. So how the heck do you get to 50 mil if you're starting from zero? So you have all this n nimble capability, but because of the huge fixed cost, you need to have 50 mil to make it profitable and stay alive. But how are you going to get 50 mil if you don't have any money to pay for salespeople to get it rolling? So, so the asset manager business is just incredibly challenging because of this chicken or the egg issue. Um, and it's the same problem with like SaaS companies or like if I'm going to start like a, net, a new Facebook or if I don't like Twitter, I'm like, well, I'm just going to go start a new Twitter. Well, the problem is they got network effects. They already got the scale. They're already there. They already paid the fixed costs. No problem. So even if you invent something that's better, more cheap or more nimble, the problem is you've got to survive to get to scale to make it profitable and worth your time. And, and that's like any good business that, that's a good business. It's going to take you a decade realistically to build it. And, and that's why it, I'm sure you've heard this saying, but in our business, particularly like an asset management financial services, it's, you know, overnight success takes 10 years. And, and that's actually a pretty good number. Like, like that's why I moved to Puerto Rico a few years ago, because it took me 10 years to finally get to this point where I was like, I actually need to worry about taxes because I'm actually making money as opposed to being broke off my ass for the past decade. Um, so it's just the nature of our, our business is challenging. So, um, man, there's so many different directions I could go that I'm trying to pick the, the route that makes the most sense for everyone. So the, the years of struggling, the years of, you know, not needing to worry about tax optimization because you're worried about growing the revenue and just getting the business to a sustainable place. Yes. Um, was it, was it bootstrapped? Like, how did you actually think about growing this thing um, outside of writing yeah. blogs and doing this content marketing? Like, what was, what was the strategy there? Yep. So, so we were 100% bootstrapped. We've always been basically bootstrapped. There, there's one wrinkle on that I'll walk you through. Um, but essentially, this is just something I always wanted to do, right? In the first place. Like, I just, even as a little kid, uh, you know, I grew up on this, on a ranch and everything. I, and I, I learned to hate manual labor, uh, at a young age. And, and then long story short, I learned like, wait a second, there's this thing called investing where you just take money and you make more money. That's a lot better than like digging ditches out in the field, right? So for whatever reason, I was like, that's what I want to do. That makes a lot more sense than like breaking my back all day long. Um, so I, I just, I was like, you know what? I got to get into this business long term. It's what I want to do. And then what my particular case is kind of cheating, right? Because what I did is I became a professor. And I, I don't know if your audience knows about like being a tenure track professor, especially at a business school in finance, but it, it's a, it's what I would call a cheese ball gig, right? <laughs> You're making like a big salary. And I had a special deal where I only had to teach three classes a year, right? So, and it was a quarter system. So there's 52 weeks in a year. 
a quarter's 10 weeks. So I literally worked where I had to like focus on like actually doing something for 10 weeks a year, but I had 42 weeks a year to do quote unquote research, right? And I'm getting a huge salary. So, so in my case, it was pretty easy to be an entrepreneur because what was I doing during the 42 weeks a year? I'm thinking about investment strategies and things that I want to do and like, cause it'll be useful for academic research, but I, Hey, I might actually make some money and turn this into an investment product someday. So I had this like very lucky situation of, of not having to like burn the midnight oil on one job and do the other one. So it sounds, um, so it sounds start. So it sounds like uh, another arbitrage. I know we're going to talk about Puerto Rico later, but another arbitrage yeah. for anyone looking to break into investing is to just get a PhD and become a professor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's not easy, but, but if you, I always tell people the best gig ever to be an entrepreneur is to somehow become a professor because it's not a real job. And I feel bad for, for what I call real entrepreneurs where, you know, you're literally like working your ass off 88, nine hours a week at your day job. And then somehow you've got to figure out how to do your entrepreneur endeavors after that. And you got a wife and you got kids. Like to me, that seems crazy. And you're just setting yourself up for failure. So you, you really need to get a situation like that where you have something floating you, but you also have your time and or what you're doing kind of matches what you want to do as an entrepreneur anyway, because that's the only realistic way you're going to be able to, to make it happen. And then the other thing that I always tell people is, so one, if you can become a professor, get your PhD, uh, you know, that's not, not easy. But, you know, if you can do that, it is a great way to set yourself up to be an entrepreneur. The second thing is just put out really great ideas and great content and, and, and put yourself out there. And so that's what we did. And, and the one way we got set up in business, and, and I don't know if you ever heard this story, it's kind of crazy, but I literally had a billionaire cold call me because he ran my blog and he ran my dissertation as well. But like it, this was way back when we started our business, right when I was becoming a professor, I got a cold call from a billionaire, um, it, this guy named Eddie Stern, who runs like the Stern family office. And, he, and he's like, hey, you know, I got like three to four billion dollars. Uh, this was around 2010. And he said, I want to get rid of all these hedge fund managers. You know, we just got smoked out in 2008. I'm tired of all this crap. We're going to take over our money. We're going to keep our costs down, control our taxes. I've been reading your blog. I like you. I trust you. Can we talk? And I was like, well, like I just ver first verified. I Googled like, is this a scam? I, I feel like I'm about to get scammed here. And I Googled him. I'm like, oh, crap. This is actually like a billionaire is calling me. Um and so one thing, one, one thing led, led to another, and then they basically kind of put us in business uh, initially because we got like essentially a fifty million dollars seed into our into our anchor strategy. And but, so that was kind of what to got us going. Just to clarify, yeah. though, just, so so people are sticking mm -hmm. with us. This is invested capital, so that AUM idea, not yes. like equity that they took in the business. Sometimes not equity. Sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, your starting investor may take also some of the shares associated with being. Um, like, yes. like actually the, the, the business equity itself, but this is invested yep. capital that you can start to take your, you know, relatively small fee on and then go to the next yeah. potential, uh, investor and say, Hey, look, we already have 50 million and this reputable investor. So, Hey, you should probably consider exactly joining right. us as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I should clarify, it's not operating capital. It is investment capital, which is obviously way different because, you know, if you have $50 million and you charge, let's say half of a percent, you know, that, that means you're getting 250K revenue. It would be really nice if someone just put $50 million in my bank account and then I could go spend that on like operating. But, but this is really 
it sounds like a lot of money, but to your point, that's the assets, but you need that because even, even if you get paid zero on that, it, you know, an asset management is something where when you talk to people, they're like, well, how much assets do you have under management? And if you tell them that you have, well, I have a hundred thousand dollars from my mom, they're gonna be like, oh, okay, maybe I'll give you $5,000, right? Cause they don't want to be like a big part of your business. But if you say, oh, I got $50 million in my business, in my assets, then they'll say, oh, I'll give you five mil. Right. So, so scale begets scale. It's like a lot of these things. You, you need scale to get the scale and it's no different in asset management. But, but the, the main point to, to go back to your original question is one, get a gig that facilitates a lot of time on your hands. And then two, put yourself out there as authentically and loudly as you possibly can. And if you're saying something different, and unique, I truly do believe in this day and age, you know, you'll, you'll have people that reach out to you. To, to inquire about, you know, what you're doing, what your value add and all that good stuff. And so, yeah, that's a perfect thing to build off of, which is people are going to have these different takes and you, you reference momentum. That's also called trend following sometimes. Um, and uh, value investing, like there's still different takes within that, you know, very large universe sure. of investing frameworks. And so if I have a particular type of momentum investing or any type of investing that I want to do, what your platform actually allows folks to do is make their own custom ETF and be that the rules or the, the, the industry or the segment that you want to focus on, you basically provide the underlying infrastructure for them to kind of express that uh, investment thesis and, and bring it to the market in not the high fee active management way, but in a lower fee way. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, and, and I'll explain it. So, so we, we have two kind of core businesses, right? And this goes back to the whole mantra of low cost and just running things lean. Um, cause we effectively had like an AWS situation, which I'll explain. So we have our asset management business, which is our branded products. So where we do the research, it's our particular ideas that we run, we put it out to the market, I personally invest in them, et cetera. But over time, because we had to survive in this crazy, you know, huge barrier to entry, entry business called asset management, we ended up building the ecosystem to support an asset manager institution on the cheap, right? And every single point along the way, we are not Goldman Sachs, where are some people in a garage trying to save money? And it turns out that, you know, we run our own assets, but that capability to be able to bring other people to market cheaply, affordably, and efficiently is, is what we call ETF architect. And that's what we're, where we do what you're talking about, where, where let's say you're an entrepreneur and you want to bring your idea to the marketplace, but you don't want to light millions of dollars on fire to try to figure out how to do that. Our platform, it's kind of like equivalent tech. It's like AWS, right? Like, do you really want to run your own server racks and do all this stuff? Probably not. It's a lot easier to just go hire Jeff Bezos in Amazon because they already did it for their own business, right? We kind of did the same thing. We, we, we didn't even know it um, because we weren't thinking about being in that business, but we essentially created like AWS for ETFs. Where, where if you don't want to deal with all the back office minutia uh, and things that most people don't want to uh, waste time on, you know, we have a business where, where we do all the infrastructure behind the scenes to allow, you know, basically people to be, <clears throat> sorry, like go be out rich and famous and sell their idea to the public, essentially. Yeah. And you're, meanwhile, you're doing the shovels and pickaxes behind the gold rush. Yes, exactly. That, that's why I tell people, I, I'll sell a great shovel that's low cost and high quality to anybody. 
who, who wants to enter our business. Cause the objective on, on that business in particular is I want to make it easier for other entrepreneurs. Cause I had to do it the hard way and then we kind of figured out how to do it, but I don't want to, I don't wish that upon my worst enemy. So how do we lower the barrier to entry where other entrepreneurs can enter our business and make it more competitive? Um, that that's what the objective of that platform is. Got it. So, uh, this has been fantastic, Wes. Any, uh, I, I want to discuss the ETF market and stuff a little bit more, but, um, you are calling in first guest we've ever had from Puerto Rico. Um, and yeah. in, in our, our note before actually doing the interview, you said it's the biggest arbitrage I know of on planet earth. So I don't know. Yes. I don't know. That's about as, as good a hook as I can put into any kind of premise. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> take it away from there. Sure. So, um, so like going back to fees, right? Like, like you always want to get as much as you possibly can and pay as little as much as possible for it. Right. And so in our investment business, people are going to haggle, well, you're charging me 1%. This person's charging me like one tenth of a percent or whatever it is. Right. But people always forget that the biggest cost on your human capital or your actual capital is not the fees. It's the taxes. Right. Because like think about your own human capital. If you're if you're making a lot of money, your marginal cost to the government is in many cases going to be half of it goes to Uncle Sam. So why are we arguing about like 10 basis points or one percent? We're talking about 50 percentage points every year goes to this this thing called the U.S. government. Right. And then similar, like on your capital, like in the form of capital gains and what have you, maybe it's not 50 but it's, you know, a good 25, 30%. And so the Puerto Rico situation, and this is something I started thinking about pretty hard because, you know, like I mentioned, like I, I was the 10, 10 year overnight success where, where I'm basically eating ramen noodles and like taking massive, huge risk with my life and like pissing off my wife and family and everything. And then we finally make it where I'm like, holy cow, like, like this is actually what these entrepreneurs, you get, you get rich, we'll call it. Like, but wait a second, now I got to give half of this back to the government. Like I finally made it. If that's the deal, that's a bad deal. I got to solve for this. Right. And so Puerto Rico has this thing called Act 60, where we're essentially the, the country will call it, even though it's not a country, it's part of the United States. It's a colony, but you can just treat it like a country because they get to kind of run their own rules. They basically have a situation where, where a lot of people have been leaving the island for a long time because like hurricanes and some other stuff. And so they're trying to incentivize people to bring their human capital and bring their talents down here. And to make a long story short, it's called Act 60, used to be called Act 2022, but effectively, and it's more complicated than this, but you pay 0% on your capital gains and you basically pay 4% income tax, right? There are, there are frictional costs, it's not that simple, but, but at a high level, it's pretty close to that, right? So the reason I call it the biggest arbitrage in the world is you might move from a, a marginal 50% tax income tax rate down to four, which is, you know, life-changing difference. Uh, if you compound that over time, it's, it, you know, it, it, I value my time. And so if you have some set like financial goal, you know, it, by ripping that much out, you're going to cut your time needed to work by like a third or like more like 70%, sorry, uh, because you're just going to get wealthier much quicker if you're not paying And it, it compounds, out. right? Like that's investing 101. It's yes. not just 50% more. And you get a compounding effect. Yes. So, so you save it and then you compound it at zero. So so you're if you just do any sort of spreadsheet modeling, let's say you have objective to hit X million in, in 20 years, 
we'll plug in the taxes. It'll take you 20 years. Come down to Puerto Rico, it might take you five, right? And so and if you don't want to be a working stiff your whole life and you can hit a certain financial objective, you know, in five years versus 20, I just literally bought 15 years of my life where I could do whatever the hell I want. To me, that's hugely valuable because I value my time because it's the only scarce resource that we all have. Um, but of course, then you got to ask, okay, Wes, well, that sounds amazing. And that would be an arbitrage if there's no cost. But, you know, do I got to go live in Afghanistan or something uh, or go, go live in Iraq, which I've actually been there, you know, that sucks. Um, and a lot of people think like, oh, like, well, I got to go to Puerto Rico. Like, like, aren't I going to get like mugged and murdered every day? And it must be terrible. And, and honestly, I think it's amazing. Like I have a place called Palmas del Mar. Like it's tropical weather. So it's like perfect weather every day. Do we have hurricanes? Of course. Is it, is it, you know, issues? Of course. There's a huge community down here where I live in particular, where it's everyone down here is like an entrepreneur. They got wife, kids. There's a huge, <clears throat> sorry, community. Like security wise, I don't even worry about it. Like it's like anywhere. Like, well, yeah, if you go out to the city, at two o'clock in your Rolls Royce and you're throwing hundred dollar bills around in the wrong neighborhood, you might get bugged, but that's not unique to Puerto Rico. That's just the world. Like that's common sense. But I actually find like Puerto Ricans to be incredibly considerate, um, friendly and open, especially if you're willing to like put in time, like learn some Spanish, learn the culture. Um, so I just see it as almost like, like there's not any cost. Like you're going to pay basically us government's going to pay me, to go live in a tropical island and hang out with really cool people every day. Like it, that's why I say it's the biggest arbitrage of all time because you get all these benefits. And at least from my perspective, there's very little cost. If anything, it's negative cost. Uh, so I like it. So, and, and one of the other benefits is that it's also like East coast time zone. Like you and I are literally like, we're yes. setting this up. We're on the exact same time zone. It's not as if I'm going to the other side of the globe and like asleep when other people are awake no. and trying to coordinate that or stay up all night. Um, yeah. but I want to just, I want to ask about the costs just, just sure. to make sure that like you said, like, I, and I'm not accusing you of doing this, but like the financial advisor, like yeah. it's, there's no cost. There's no downside whatsoever. That's always like the alarm flag going off. So, Oh yeah, 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 sure. There, there is some infrastructure stuff and there is some hurricane stuff. Is that the, would, that, would you call that like the two big uh, so costs associated with say, it? Yeah. So, so there's upfront frictional costs to set it up, right? Cause you got to hire some lawyers, accountants, and that can range depending on the complexity of your situation from like 10 grand to a hundred grand or more. Um, but, but that's not really, if you're bringing any sort of scale down here, we're like, Obviously, you're, you're at a marginal rate of 50. This is chump change, right? That the real cost, honestly, is the is the emotional and like family costs and like the frictional costs of you've literally got of no kidding live down here and be a bona fide resident. So, and that's costing the sense from an emotional standpoint. If you're in a place, you have a lot of anchors, you have a lot of roots. You, you literally, you literally, you cannot really not live in Puerto Rico and just hang out down here. Like you got to literally live here. So I would say that's frankly the biggest cost, the real cost that people got to think about. And is um, that like one of those things where it's like 180 days out of the year or something like that? They're like, so you, you're depends. verifying that. So, so what it is, is, is there's my strong recommendation. So on the capital gains, it depends on sourcing, right? So capital gains are sourced where you reside. So wherever your bona fide residence is, that's where all your capital gains get attributed. So that requirement means you need to be a bona fide residence and put 183 days 
in Puerto Rico. This is also the same rule that applies to like a Florida, a California, Texas, what have you. Same deal for capital gains. In order to get the capital gains sourced to like a certain state, you have to put in the time. Income is sourced where you do the work. So for example, let's just say you're like, oh, I'm going to be smart. I'm going to move from California to Florida, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to go live in Florida for six months a year and a day and not in California. But I do live in California. I do work from California. So capital gains, you're good. 100% of your capital gains is going to be subject to Florida state taxes, none to California. However, your income, the 183 days that you're standing in Florida is going to be subject to the zero state tax. But the other days that you're sitting in California doing work, those are going to be subject to California state tax still. Same kind of concept in Puerto Rico, right? If you do six months down here, you will get the 4% tax rate on your income if it, if it runs through like a, like a company and it's structured correctly. However, for the other days that you're in the States, like if you go live in New York and you work the other six months up there, those six months, you're just subject to good old fashioned taxes you were paying beforehand. Be, be, again, because the sourcing on different types of income are different just based on the tax rules. So I always tell people, if you want to get the real deal, you really need to be down here like 80, 90% of your days and, and just live here as like a full-time resident. Um, Got it. That's what I do. Got it. Well, this has been incredibly educational, Wes. Uh, before we aim towards wrapping up and last asking our standard last questions, was there anything else you were hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? Uh, no, I, I would say if we're talking to entrepreneurs out there, my my biggest advice on that, because a lot of people ask me, is, is you just got to keep your internal operating costs down and you just got to be willing to grind realistically for like five to 10 years on nothing. And, and if you don't have that capability, it's why would you do it? Like, what's the point? It's just, it's too risky and too crazy. Um, so any entrepreneur out there who, who wants to do this, it, it's like anything in life. It's not a free lunch. And that includes being an entrepreneur and it's not for everybody. Totally. And, and I've talked with so many different entrepreneurs about this. And it sounds like you're kind of over that threshold where things are starting to really compound in an exciting way because you're past the 10 yeah. years. But it, yeah. it's not just that, you know, the revenue of the business compounds or that the number of clients compounds. It's that your skill and your capabilities as an entrepreneur compound as well. And I'm, you know, yes. my business is approaching five years. So I'm halfway to that overnight um, mm -hmm. uh, success story. But I'm like realizing things now that it's it's painful. I'm like, man, if I could have just figured this out like two years ago, holy hell, it'd be in a completely different place. And I know that there's 18 yeah. more of those waiting for me here over the next couple of years uh, yeah. that I just have to try to accelerate my, my rate to getting to. Um, but that's, that is exactly, you know, what I've experienced and is affirming to hear from you is that, that compounding isn't just for investors. It's for entrepreneurs as well. Yes. And in the 90% stat or whatever it is about like 90% of businesses fail, it, it, it's kind of like a PhD, right? They always say like, if you get a PhD, it, it's 1% brains, 99% perspiration. And, and it's very easy to identify who's going to finish PhD not based on their IQ, but just their ability to grind. And same thing with entrepreneurship. Like, I don't need to know your brains. I don't need to know anything. If I have a sense for like your, your culture of discipline and ability to grind, I, you know, it's not the 90% odds that you're going to have. Your probably odds are probably more like inverse. There's probably a 90% chance you will win 
uh, if you can do it. So I'd say if you're someone who's got that discipline, you've got that passion, and this is something you want to do, um, you know, even though we're talking about how hard it is, I wouldn't dissuade you because I think your probability of success is actually more like 90% you're going to win. It's the 90% stat is, is the, is the, you know, the, the, the total population of everyone who tries. And as you know, just based on how many fat people there are in America, like it's really easy to lose weight and get skinny, like eat less and work out more. But the problem is how many people can actually do that, right? Same thing, entrepreneur. It's really easy. Like we just said, you got to be willing to work for 10 years and hate, you know, work really hard and not be getting a lot of benefits. And that's just a hard thing to do. So that, that's where those stats come from. But you should stick with it if you if you really think you got the discipline. Yeah, and I just love the way that you know you approach thinking about investing and how you are evidence based, but you're also you know part of that from a statistical perspective is what are the base rates? And so I saw yes. the same statistics when I got started, and my whole thing was okay if ninety percent of people fail, what percent fail that don't work just forty hours that work 50, 60, 70 hours, and then what percent fail if they read more than ten books a year, and what percent fail if they you know commit to a uh, content publishing schedule and never break it. Like, and then you start to yeah. shift the base rates in your favor if you yeah. can play those different games. But uh, inspiring stuff, uh, happy for you and all the uh, success and compounding that you've already experienced. And the fact that you're getting 15 years back is uh, uh, certainly something that plenty of people are going to be jealous of. If they want to learn more about you, about Alpha Architect, where in the digital world can we point people that want to learn more? Best place is Twitter, uh, at Alpha Architect. And then on LinkedIn, I'm pretty active as well. Um, also like slash Alpha Architect. So, but Twitter's the main place where I, where I reside. Perfect. Uh, we're going to link that and all the other relevant links in the show notes of this episode. So you can connect with Wes, uh, com slash podcast is the place for every episode of the show to find that or in the app where you're probably listening to this right now. But Wes, before we let you go, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an <laughs> actionable personal challenge to the audience. All right. So I run this event called March for the Fallen. We're eight years running now, and it is a 28-mile ruck march. But I always tell people, hey, everyone's got a personal summit where it's not a charity because the charity is actually showing up to this event and conducting the event in remembrance of people that obviously fell in the service because there's a lot of what they call gold star families out there. Um, and so in order to do this, it's very easy. Go to alphaarchitect.com slash MFTF and sign up, register. Uh, we actually cover logistics and chow. You just got to pay the 40 bucks to the base. It's out in the middle of Pennsylvania. Bunch of finance geeks out there that I bring, uh, a lot of movers and shakers in our business. And that's something you could literally do right now sign up and in two months I'll see you in the flesh should be fun. Awesome. Where is that in Pennsylvania? Cause that's not, not too far from me. Yeah. It's in uh, Fort Indian town gap, just, just near uh, Harrisburg. It's around like 40 minutes. It's at the national guard uh, training center. Awesome. Well, we are going to uh, share that link, encourage people to do it. We've got Pittsburgh listeners. So hopefully maybe we can get a, a caravan of folks coming out uh, your way there for that. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be awesome. We'd appreciate it. Uh, and so, so obviously with uh, gold star families, beautiful, so, good stuff. 
Well, Wes, this has been fantastic. I've learned a lot. I'm feeling inspired. I'm going to go, I don't know, maybe maybe not march that many miles, but I'm going to go uh, go for a walk or a run or something after this because I'm fired up. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Yeah, appreciate you having me. It's been an honor. We just went deep with Wes Gray. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Thanks for watching to the end of my interview with Wes. If you enjoyed it, check out our past interview with Mike Green. We talk about index funds, we talk about Bitcoin, and we talk about his career in the hedge fund business.